This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by a very special leader, Dr. Rebecca Mishuras. Dr. Mishuras is both a, a master's in public health. She's the chief medical officer, medical information officer at Boston Medical Center Health System, a magnificent system, both a great system and a safety net system. She's also an assistant professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Mishuras, can you take a moment, introduce yourself, and tell us a little bit about Boston Medical Center. Sure. Thanks for having me, Scott. So um, as you said, I am both a practicing primary care physician and also the chief medical information officer for Boston Medical Center Health System. Um, The kind of largest umbrella of what it is that I do is to think about how we employ and deploy technology to better meet the needs of our patients and our users of our system. Um, CMC itself is a fairly unique um, organization. We are a um, tertiary care academic safety net hospital um, located in the center of Boston um, and affiliated with Boston University School of Medicine. Um, And so that means that we serve a a population that is largely underserved generally. Um, So um, the majority of our patients um, are um, of minority descent. Um, They live at or below the federal poverty limit. A third of our patients don't speak English as their primary language. Um, And so you can imagine the complexities of of trying to care for this population or these really very distinct populations of of people that we care for, um, both in terms of meeting their clinical care needs, but also their um, other needs that relate to their clinical outcomes, so um, generally referred to as as social determinants of health, um, and doing so in a way that um, meets the patients where they are, um, whether that's um, a certain language or a certain location um, or or certain needs that um, may be impacting their their health outcomes. And and take a moment on the following question. The the northeastern part of the United States has outperform the rest of the country in terms of vaccine rates. Uh, a little bit higher levels, percentages of vaccines, people getting vaccines, having fully vaccinated, than the Midwest, the West, the South, and so forth. What are you seeing in the communities you serve in the Boston Medical Center community, the, the safety net communities, the minority communities? Are, are those communities doing better on average than they're doing nationally in terms of vaccine rates? And how much of your role as CMIO is trying to figure that out? How are we doing with our population in terms of vaccines and so forth? Yeah, it's a really important and obviously very timely topic um, where I'm spending a, spent quite a bit of time over the last few months and, and I'm now spending some more time again. Um, so, you know, very lucky that we live in, in New England and in Massachusetts where vaccines um, appeared early and, and became um, readily available pretty quickly. Um, I think what we see in Massachusetts in terms of the safety net populations and minority populations is that they are um, seeking out vaccinations at lower rates um, than, than white populations, um, but in Massachusetts actually at higher rates than in the rest of the country. Um, and so overall, right, Massachusetts is doing much better um, than, the rest, than much of the rest of the country in terms of vaccination. But that has taken quite a bit of effort on our part um, to try and meet people where they are for, for this year in a, in a community sense. Um, I think I'm also really excited about the work we're doing in equity generally, 
um, at the hospital, both from a, a data and, and kind of IT intervention perspective, and also just from a clinical outcomes perspective. So, you know, using our, our existing data and data that exists nationally to identify where there are inequities and then designing interventions to address those. Um, everything from, um, you know, accurately identifying somebody's race, ethnicity, language preferences, um, to intervening clinically to make sure that we are providing equitable care and achieving equitable outcomes for, for everyone um, who seeks to, to their care with us. Um, and then, you know, as part of that, also addressing the technology divide. Um, the last 18 months saw us move a large portion um, of our care over to virtual health, like most of the rest of the country. Um, that has certainly been pulled back slightly as the pandemic has waxed and waned and, and people have felt more comfortable coming back in um, to clinics for care. But I, I think virtual health is here to stay um, and we have to be delivering that kind of care and allowing access to that kind of care in an equitable way. And, and for some folks, that means making sure that they have the technology and, and quite honestly know how to use it. Um, and so we're starting to partner with some community-based organizations to connect patients to the technology, connect them to digital education um, or, or technology education so they know how to use their devices to access us that way should, should they choose to, should that be appropriate for their care. Um, and then I, I think the third thing I'm really excited about for this year is kind of a, a doubling down and, and really intense focus on addressing provider or user efficiency um, and how that translates to reducing um, physician burnout. And another question for you, as Chief Medical Information Officer, who is most contact with? Is most contact with other physicians? Is it with nursing staff? Is it with executive leadership? Is it with direct patients? Or, or is, it, is it studying data and then trying to use that data? How does the role of CMIO, how do you look at that in terms of who you're actually visiting with informing, teaching, advocating with, where does the CIMO spend their time in those different constituents? It's a, it's a great question. And I, I would say that we spend our time in, in all of those areas. Um, the majority of my time though is spent um, almost as an interpreter <laughs> between um, physicians and, and users of the systems and the IT team. Um, those two groups of people speak very different languages, as you can imagine, given their backgrounds and, and how they interact with the systems that we have in place, um, and, and really need someone to, to, un to understand both worlds and be able to translate back and forth. And so I spend a lot of my time doing that. Um, I, I certainly spend a lot of my time um, with our executive leadership, understanding the strategic direction of the organization and, and how um, we need to be able to support that from an IT or, or clinical IT perspective um, and, and also letting them know what um, new technologies might be coming around the corner or, or new ways of implementing technologies or, or employing technologies might be coming around the corner that we should be thinking about as an organization. I would say that, you know, my top two constituents, if you will, are, are our patients, right? Like kind of number one goal is that we are providing safe, um, high quality care to our patients, and then to, to my users, to the physicians, to the medical assistants, to the nurses, um, to anyone who's interacting with our health IT systems, um, in, inclusive of patients as well, of course, they, they interact with them um, in, a, in a different way, but, but a highly important way to ensure that they remain engaged in their care. Um, hey, and then lastly, I think, question. oh, yeah, go ahead. 
it, it, if you went back 10 years ago, so much of that interaction, if, if one was CMIO at that time, would have been around physicians trying to get used to EMRs, EHRs, or venting about EHRs and EMRs. Um, and, and obviously, a lot of physicians had a lot of help in doing so. And so, it, it, you know, it didn't all fall on the physicians to figure it out because they got a lot of help from staff and so forth to get there. But, but I assume today, a lot less of it is venting about the EMR, the EHR, and trying to figure out the EMR and EHR. And where are a lot of those interpretation issues today? What, what do physicians, like when you think of a super user that is a physician who's highly engaged, he or she, in information world and, and data, who would be a super user? Is that someone that's calling you constantly to understand vaccine stats or is constantly figuring out how to use a new application or trying to interpret data? Who would be sort of like, I, mean, I assume in any population, there are some super users and, and almost, and I mean it in a positive way, not the people that are complaining the most about this doesn't work, I can't send this, I don't like that app. But, but, but who's most engaged that, you know, it, 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 and maybe there's someone you could think of as a fictional name for it, but a person for it, but who's most engaged in content, who's most engaged in trying to get the most out of the information systems and information and so forth? Do you have some of those super users? We, we definitely do. I, I don't want to discount the fact that there are absolutely still people who struggle um, to use the EHR and, and get on the system. Um, I think you're right, you know, 10 years ago, we were all just implementing EHRs to one degree or another. Um, and now we're at a place where we're really kind of continuously optimizing them and looking for efficiencies um, and increased effectiveness of those systems. Um, and so we still provide a lot of that kind of ground level support to providers. Um, we, we definitely use data to identify who might be struggling more than someone else um, and, and try to intervene with them earlier <laughs> or more often. Um, and then um, the folks that you're calling super users, right? I, I would, um, those are the people who have figured out how to use the EHR and want to move to the next level or maybe even the level after that and are really um, kind of sophisticated users of the system and, and really are looking to um, take advantage of the EHR in the way that we all envisioned EHRs would exist, right? The EHR is not, the intent of the EHR was not just to become a digital version of our old manila folders, um, but to actually be able to advance care because of the ways in which we could harness data. Um, and so those, those you know, quote unquote super users are the people who are looking to start doing that, um, who are identifying that we can harness that data to understand how certain populations react to certain treatments or how diseases um, manifest differently in different populations and, and using the data to surface that, um, that learning and that information and then you, turning that around to identify how we intervene differently um, with those populations and, and looking to see you know, from an academic standpoint um, how, whether that actually results in, in better care or better patient engagement, better experience. Um, and then being able to to spread that into into actual practice. And what is you know obviously this vaccine rollout COVID nineteen so interesting. In your role as as CMIO, what has like is there anything that surprised you the last several years? Anything you sort of said like, well, I didn't expect that issue to come up, or I didn't expect that. Is anything that sort of like you would think it literally surprised you or? particularly just really excited you or interested you 
anything along those lines that you think of for the last several years, oh, that was surprising, or that was really an interesting learning experience? Um, so I certainly did not expect a pandemic. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the last enough. 18 months has, has definitely been an interesting learning experience. I think actually one of the things that, you know, there, there are lots of horrible things that have come out of the last 18 months out of the pandemic, um, but there are some silver linings, right? And, and I think to some degree, one of the silver linings we've seen is actually in the processes we have um, to identify and implement technologies in faster ways, right? More effective ways. Um, and, and that's something that we will bring out of this pandemic into the future so that we can actually um, take advantage of the technologies that exist in, in um, faster ways and, and deploy them in more meaningful ways um, for our providers, for our patients, um, for the population at large. I think the other thing um, that, that may have, um, that has, that has been interesting to watch um, is the explosion of digital. Um, and, and not just um, telehealth um, or, or things like that, but, but the explosion of how we are employing advanced analytics, things like um, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, but as in general with healthcare, right, taking it pretty slow um, and, and waiting to see where this is gonna go um, and, and making sure that we are deploying those technologies um, in safe and equitable ways. Um, and so, you know, anytime there's new technology, people love the shiny new object. Um, but when I, th when I think about healthcare, I, I think that we have to actually take it pretty slow when it comes to those shiny new objects because you're dealing with people's health and life. And life. Um, and, and we can't, you know, kind of rush to the table for these things. And, and we need to sometimes take a step back and, and understand how they work under the hood um, before and, we and deploy them across thousands of individuals. Well, and, and sometimes so much of the shiny new objects end up being bought and getting utilized by a small percentage of potential users so not optimized at all. Give me the contrast. What is a piece of technology or, or part of the, you know, that has been adopted, and you could name names as you want as long as we're not slandering or something negative about something, but we're going to ask the opposite question. What, what technology have you implemented or as, as the health system implemented that sort of is used a lot more by a lot more users than you would have expected? Is there anything along those lines that you're sort of like, oh, this, is, this has been, you know, because so many times technology is bought and there's a huge continuum of how much it's used. What has been used a lot? What's, what surprised you to the positive that it's been adapted to and taken to and stuff like that? Yeah. So um, telehealth actually comes to mind. Certainly over the last 18 months, we were all forced to use it because of the pandemic and, and efforts to kind of um, curb the pandemic. But um, I think we're all gonna be pleasantly surprised at the foothold that telehealth has had and, and the percentage of, of care that's going to continue to be delivered over virtual care or, or over telehealth. Um, it's, a, it's a new way, um, not from a technology perspective, but it's, it's a new access point. For, for folks who, um, you know, anyone who's experienced over the last 18 months has come to realize that it's, it's pretty convenient, um, right? You can have your telehealth visit from your office, from your home, um, hopefully not while you're driving a car, but that I'm sure happens. Um, but it's an incredibly convenient way to access care as long as it's done appropriately. Um, so I, I think telehealth will be one of those things. And, and, and the other thing that we've seen happen is um, on the provider side, right, when we talk about provider efficiency, people are looking for ways to be more efficient in how they interact with the system. Um, and, and a lot 
lot of people have taken to voice recognition in, in ways that um, not everyone might have predicted, I think. Um, and, and so folks who maybe had shunned traditional dictation in the past are taking to, um, to, to voice recognition in, in new ways and, and using it not just to, to um, dictate a note, but actually to navigate through their EHR and finding that to be a much faster um, and more efficient way to get through the EHR than with a mouse and a keyboard. No, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting you say that because like the ability to sort of sometimes, you know, it's, 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 as I get older, it's less reading, it's more audiobooks. If I could do a podcast versus writing something, what a pleasure. And I'm sure it's the same thing for physicians. If somebody could spend less time writing everything down or writing data in the computer and could talk it in, God bless, makes life just a little bit easier and so forth. And things that make things easier allow you to do more and spend more time with patients doing more of the right things. So I'll, I'll ask one final question, which is probably the hardest question of the day. You've gone to four of the greatest educational institutions in the country, uh, Boston University, MIT, Harvard, Georgetown. Just rank them one to four. No, I'm just kidding. Give us something great about each of the institutions you went to. Oh, goodness. And, and I truly have actually um, gotten so, so much out of each of those experiences and, and very different things, right? MIT is really where my career started. Um, I actually, as an undergrad, um, worked with an organization that even at that time actually was trying to address social determinants of health, although we didn't call them that then. And I worked with the MIT Media Lab to develop a touchscreen kiosk that would allow um, patients to access social determinants of health resources through, through a computer. And, and so that's really, I think, where my clinical informatics um, uh, world started. And, and MIT certainly, you know, I left MIT with, um, people say it facetiously, but it, it's totally true, the ability to think about a problem um, and, and to see the different sides and, and address the problem. Um, I and, went and that's more, is that more, is that more, is that Kendall Square or what, where is that MIT? MIT Porter is in Square? Cambridge. Yep. Um, centered around Kendall Square or, or not really centered, but, but it, one side of MIT is, is in Kendall Square um, and then straddles Mass Ave in Cambridge. Got it. So our, our high school valedictorian went to MIT. So I know just uh, yeah. super bright, super bright people. And he happens to be a physician yeah. as well. Okay. So that's uh, MIT. Yeah. So that was MIT. I, I went from there to actually to consulting, um, and and then I went to Georgetown, um, where um, two things happened. One was I became a student again after having not been a student for a few years, but really developed a love for the human body and and how um, the the body works, and also made some some lifelong friends, even though I was only there for a year. Um, so that was Georgetown, and, and Georgetown really set me up to go to BU for medical school, um, where you know I, I certainly became the physician that I am today, um, developed a love for primary care, um, and, and also brought back the technology aspect of, of what I was doing, and we developed one of the first electronic sign-out tools for inpatient spaces. Um, so, so that was so, a lot of fun. So, so that's in Kendall Square is part of MIT's part in Kendall Square. I, I, I'm spacing out on um, what is the square that Boston University was centered around? Uh, Boston So Boston University itself, the undergrad campus is is near Kenmore Square, so slightly different. Right. Um, but the the medical school is actually in the south end of Boston, co-located with Boston Medical Center. Um, so so 
the, the medical center and the medical school are, and actually the School of Public Health as well are, are all co-located in the south end of Boston. Ah, fantastic. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so Boston University, MIT, Georgetown, and now Harvard. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and most people that can't help themselves lead with Harvard, but you left Harvard for last. So tell us about Harvard. I did. Well, I, I went in chronological order, I suppose. Um, and, and so Harvard was where I um, went for my general internal medicine fellowship after my residency and chief residency at um, Boston Medical Center. Um, and Harvard was really where I developed an understanding of research methodologies um, and um, brought in the academic aspect of the work that I do in clinical informatics. Um, and so you know, even clinical informatics, we strive to understand how what we do has impact, um, whether it's on patient outcomes or provider efficiency or cost containment. Um, and, and so that was really where the, my academic work started in the clinical informatics space. Um, and I, I left there with a master's in public health and, um, you know, professional connections and, and friendships that, that I will have for the, the rest of my career. Fantastic. And, and obviously, a lot of this accounts to different areas and periods of one's life. Which was the most fun? The natural place of the most fun would typically be undergraduate, but which did you find to be the most fun of the four that you did? Um, so I think, you know, from a pure fun perspective, um, it, it probably was undergraduate, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I, I think from a, a fun um, career perspective, it was really at, at Harvard where I, I honed my um, understanding of, of where I wanted my career to go and, and which elements of my um, kind of academic and educational experience I wanted to bring forward and, and how I wanted to address clinical informatics, right? There are people in clinical informatics who are um, pure academic researchers. There are people who go and work for technology companies um, and develop the actual technologies. And then there are people like me um, who go and work in the hospital. You know, I, I still practice primary care medicine. I, I have a panel of patients who are my primary care patients um, and really seek to to improve the systems in which they exist and, and to bring those technologies in um, in new ways and exciting ways for, for those around them to be able to use to advance care. And, and was it magnificent? I mean, you were already had already gone back to school seriously at that point. You'd done in medical school, which is, you know, hard, hard, hard work in a residency. By the time you do a fellowship and go to medical school for that, is that not as stressful as the residency in medical school? I mean, those just seem incredibly stressful. Yeah, I, I would say um, from an academic standpoint, the, probably the most stressful was um, freshman physics at MIT, actually. Um, but, um, but from there, um, you know, certainly by the time you get to your postgraduate training, you have a better sense of what you want to do with the information. And you're really there to absorb the information to further what you want to do next. Um, rather than trying to get the A or the highest grade on something, you're there to learn for learning's sake. And, and that's a very different experience than being an undergraduate or graduate school where you kind of need to get the grades to get to the next place. Um, once you're in postgraduate training, you're, you're getting the information so that you can have your career. 
and you can take your career in, in different directions. And, and so that's just a very different experience. No, what a fascinating perspective. Dr. Mishra, I, I apologize for taking you much for much more of your time than we usually do, but what a pleasure to visit with you and hear about your career and what you're doing and Boston Medical Center, an incredible place. Thank you for joining us today on the Factors Healthcare Podcast. Thanks for having me.